If you would, open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On earth. He also told them, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to approach your word. I pray that it would be done so with reverence, and that we would listen to our Messiah. I pray that you would help us focus This is one and a half hours out of a seven-day week where we commit to gather as your people, to assemble, to be the church, to signal to the world and to each other that it is you to whom we submit, that the Lord Jesus is in fact our head. I pray that you would enable us to hear what our great God and King Jesus has to say. Pray that we would be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know that I've been talking up or talking about a series on First and Second Peter for some time. And were we not to come now to this sermon, we would be beginning that series right now. So why stop in the plan and commit to two sermons, in fact, on the topic of prayer. 
I think in many ways it is easy to underestimate as a group of people the importance and central significance of prayer in the life of a church. And there are several reasons for that, and some of those we will see here in a moment. But I think especially in our culture, we run the risk of thinking that we are in fact equipped to accomplish everything we need to do. If there's a problem that is hindering us from doing everything we might want to do as a church, it's primarily logistical or maybe theological. So if we straighten out our thinking and straighten out our efficiency metrics, then we will be an efficient church and God will bless and everything will happen just as it's supposed to happen. But for those of you that know the Bible well, you know that that is indeed not the case. You'll hear me say it again in this message, but there are just so many ways that everything can go wrong. And that is being played out in different spheres of uh, knowledge that I have and seeing people and churches struggle in different ways. And I have to wonder if each of the churches that Jesus Christ himself has something to say against in the Revelation to John, if they had committed themselves to being a praying church, would they have come to these problems? Though I'm not wagering, and nor is it a biblical practice to wager on things like that, it is my suspicion that they would not. Just take, for example, the church in Ephesus. They abandoned their first love. If they were a church committed to prayer, if they were marked as a church given to prayer, do you think they would have abandoned their first love? I doubt it. And so we come to this text. I read both of these parables because I think they are connected and address the same topic. But let's address this question. Why don't we pray? This is going off of what is said in the first verse, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the question is essentially this. What causes us to lose heart in prayer? And these are not straw men arguments or answers. These are real problems that I think you and I and we as a church run up against that discourage us or cause us to lose heart and lose fervor For prayer. Number one, if you're following along in the notes, as you see, is a lack of time. I think a lack of time causes us to lose heart. Jesus says that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Be the type of person who prays without stopping is essentially what he's saying. There is a wrong way of praying without ceasing where you begin to think of God as as something like the lottery or hunting rare game where you just keep praying the same thing over and 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 maybe one day you'll pray it the right way or one day your prayers will line up with God's secret, hidden counsels, and then God will answer. That's not the flavor of our persistence. That is not why we ought to pray. 
Because the Lord says in Matthew's Gospel, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. We should not be constant in prayer just to fill the air, as it were, or to barrage heaven with the same type of request over and over and over for the off chance that God will hear us one day and answer. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We're not supposed to just pile up words and think that that is being spiritual. On the other hand, turn to Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. And understand, this is all under the heading of losing time and, and, and a lack of time, rather, to, to pray. And I think when we look at what in our minds is praying without ceasing, we say, well, I don't have time for that. I don't have time to always be praying the same things over and over. That would be quite exhausting. But look at Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think the point of Paul's exhortation is this, as he connects the need for prayer with anxieties. If you have time to be anxious about it, then you have time to pray about it. That's what I think he's saying. If you can carve out space in your mind and your heart to be anxious about something, to angst about something, to go through the algorithms in your mind, well, if then, if then, and if this happens, what am I going to do? And here are the three different options under that. And if you have time to do that, you have time to pray about it. Don't be anxious. But rather, that thing that is causing anxiety, bring that to the Lord in prayer. That's what he's saying. Or think of it this way. Invite the Lord to be a part of the conversation in your mind as you're thinking about it. This is very much what most of the Psalms are. We, we can't remove the things from our lives that cause us anxiety. The Lord will do that one day when we meet with Him in glory. But as it is in our lives, there are things, and if you pay attention, there are more and more things that cause anxiety, that are frustrations, that are problems, they are legitimate problems. The Scripture never says that they're not legitimate. But what we find in the Psalms is, is, is the psalmist, whether it's David or someone else, and he's, he's making the Lord part of the conversation in his own heart. And he's taking these concerns directly to him. Here's what Eric Ortland says about the Psalms, speaking specifically about the category of lament. Giving people space to lament doesn't kill faith. And God doesn't take it as a slight to His reputation. He continues to say, I'm frankly shocked by what you get to say to God in the book of Psalms. I wouldn't let my kids talk to me that way. But I think God, in His grace, essentially says, you're honoring me when you make this my problem. That's your posture. That's how you can pray without ceasing, brothers and sisters. A lack of time 
And none of us have an overabundance of time unless you are young. And then your, your mind is going so fast you don't realize how much time you have. Understand, this is not a super spiritual thing to pray without ceasing. This is often held out as, as something that maybe only very glorified or sanctified people can do to pray without ceasing. Honestly, I think it's just believing that the Lord actually wants you to bring your burdens to Him. I think it's just basic to the definition of faith to believe that in Christ, God's, God's heart towards you is to bless and to provide. That He really does want to. It is His desire to do so. And making it His problem, making Him part of the conversation, if you have time to be anxious about it, bringing it to Him, that's how we find time or transform our time in our lives to pray without ceasing. The second way I think we lose heart, or the second reason why we don't pray is a lack of understanding. And on this point, it is very important that we get some level of clarity. We must rightly understand sovereignty and omniscience. The argument essentially goes like this. God is sovereign. He has decreed from before all time whatsoever will come to pass. That's very true. He works all things out according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1. God sees no surprises. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and He's sustaining the existence of all things right now by the word of His power. So if He knows all that, and He's already decreed, permitted, allowed, caused, whatever you want to say, he's already, He knows it. It's there. Why pray? Does it really change anything? Honestly, I think this is more a problem at an emotional level than it is an intellectual one. We feel a problem with those things. God tells me to pray, and yet He already knows the end from the beginning and it's decreed it all. So what difference does it make? We feel uh, jilted in some way. We feel like, like it's a trick. Like, well, thanks God for giving me this command to pray without ceasing, but what does it actually do? And to address this, I think the answer is more found in the purpose of prayer in general than to try and define a lengthy definition of sovereignty and omniscience and God's decrees and how all that works. And the answer is not just to say, well, don't worry about that. Leave all that to God. You're commanded to pray, so just pray. That's not how the Bible answers the question, so we shouldn't be so cheap in our answers to these things. And it is not, the answer is not to say, well, if it be your will, like, and just attach that to everything that we pray, Lord, please uh, help me find a new job if it be your will. Please heal me if it be your will. Um, it starts sounding like this, Lord God, whatever you have determined to do, please do it. And you're not praying for anything at that point. That's, that's essentially saying, God, do what you've already decided to do. And it begins to sound passive-aggressive, even if we don't think that way. If you want to do this, you can do it. Right? You ever ask someone to do something for you, and it sounds more like, do you want to? Or maybe you want to do this? Instead of just asking, hey, can you please do this? But let's look at James 1, uh, I'm sorry, James 4, 1 through 4. Turn there. 
James 4, 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I think this passage, even though it's discussing disunity and problems within the church, he does go like a beeline to the issue of praying for what you need as one of the root causes of disunity and covetousness. And that's essentially how the Lord rebukes David. If you needed something, you could have asked me instead of going and trying to get it yourself. And so God's rebuke through James is essentially the same thing. You really need something? You really find yourself lacking something? Ask me. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask wrongly. So I'm not going to answer you in that either. So I think we should ask and ask rightly and we can reasonably expect for the Lord to answer more than otherwise. Obviously not always. But I think our emphasis should be understanding God's desire to bless and help us rather than thinking, well, maybe one in 10,000 prayers he'll answer. Not a stingy father. I think some of our visions of God especially when it comes to prayer, view heaven as an iron ceiling and God as a stingy God who just wants us to suffer and languish until He returns. Don't be so cheap in your view of God. Matthew 6, verse 9, For your Father knows what you need before you ask. God understands your needs better than you do. So the question is naturally, well, then, well, why doesn't he just give us what we need? And here's what I was saying about the purpose of prayer in general. Understand this. You've got to get this. It is far more important for you that you grow in gratitude and faith than for you to just get what you need. So there are indeed things that God knows right now that you need. You may not even be aware of them. Or it could be something that you know you need and He knows that you need, but you won't ask for it or haven't. And when you ask, you're asking wrongly to spend it on your passion. So He's not going to give you what you legitimately need. Because it's better for you to not have what you need so that He will grow you in gratitude and faith in order to ask Him rightly. Because growing in gratitude and faith is what prepares you for glory, brothers and sisters. And so asking rightly in a way that will grow gratitude and faith is what we're after. Understand that that's His mercy to withhold things, even if they're things that you need, so that you would be more grateful and trust Him more. So leave God's decrees to Him and understand that His purposes towards you are for you to grow. And it is a sign of humility and trust for you to ask and ask rightly and to trust that His will towards you is to bless. The third thing that I think causes us to 
languish in prayer and to lack zeal in prayer is a lack of love. To demonstrate this, I want to just read several passages back to back and just make a few comments on them as we go. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And that stands as kind of an intro of the flow of the Upper Room Discourse that takes place between John chapter 13 to John 17. And what Jesus does as He loves them to the end in those chapters is to teach them. He promises them the Holy Spirit and then He gets a sense, I think you can really see this, He begins to sense that He's running out of time. I have many things to teach you, but you can't bear it yet. He, He sees His doom coming and the will of the Father to hand Him over to sinful men, and He senses His time is short, and so what does He do? He prays for them. And He prays for you and me in John 17. That's where we get the high priestly prayer. The way that Jesus loves His own to the end is to kind of finish out everything He wants to say as much as He can, and then leave a chunk of time to pray for you and to pray for me and to pray for them. Romans 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then a few verses later in verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. You understand that God the Father has given you His very best. He has given you His Son to die for you and to intercede for you. And He has given you His Spirit to dwell in you and to intercede for you. This is the way that the love of the Father is expressed even now towards you. The Father can't pray to anybody. You get that? The Father can't pray for you but He has guaranteed that His Spirit and His Son will pray for you to the Father forever if you're in Him. This is how He loves you now. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for the saints. So the question is this, do you love like God? Is your love of the same type as God's love? Is it the same species, so to speak? Just the same thing to ask, do you have real love in your heart for anyone? If you do, then you would pray for them. This is exactly what I think Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3-8. through go, go ahead and turn there. I want you to see this. Philippians 1, 3-8. through I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, 
making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affections of of Christ Jesus. He says he prays for them all, always in every prayer of his, because he loves them. I think the reason we languish in prayer, to summarize, is because we, we haven't worked to stir up love in our hearts towards others. If we love them like God loved them, we would pray for them. The third reason I think we languish in prayer and why we don't pray is a lack of zeal. We lack zeal for the things of God. A good life, a nice car, a nice house, a decent job and a respectable requirement, uh, retirement, none of those things require that much zeal or any kind of God-sized imagination. Those are the things that the Gentiles seek. This is a domesticated vision of what it means to be human. It requires no prayer because in general, everyone, if you just do a good job and be diligent, you can get that for the most part, especially in our country, more than the rest of the world. It's easy, but if we had zeal for the difficult things that are godly, we would pray much, much more. Jesus says that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We understood the difficulty of the pursuit of God and we had zeal for that very thing. We would pray much, much more. Having the good life is easy. But godliness in the last days? A church growing spiritually? Salvation for those who have hardened their hearts? More healthy churches to be started? For sick churches to repent and become healthy? For the church abroad to be unified? When was the last time you prayed for those things? Those are things that our wisdom and our ability can't cause. If we wanted those things, if we had zeal for those things, we would pray so much more. We need revival, brothers and sisters. Psalm 85, verse 6 says this, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? If you had zeal for the people of God rejoicing in God and being filled with that joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, we would be committed to praying. I think lastly, why we struggle to pray, why it's hard for us to pray, is because we lack answers. And what I mean here is that we lack answers from God. We pray for years for God to do something. We pray on and on and on with such passion or zeal. Maybe you do have zeal with respect to a certain thing that you're praying for, and God doesn't answer in the way that we would want Him to. 
But if you consider the story of the Bible and the narrative unfolding as it does and the examples of people who pray, you begin to see a clearer picture. You know, Job, in his desire for answers from God, he he received not necessarily what he was looking for, but he received something better. He wanted an explanation of what took place maybe in the heavenly council and why God handed him over to the affliction of the enemy. But he doesn't get that. He gets to see God. Consider Nehemiah. He prays that God would give him favor in the sight of the emperor. And he prays a prayer of confession before doing that. And he just starts working. There's no indication of all, in all of Nehemiah that he ever received a word from the Lord or a visitation from an angel or a prophet coming to him. He just does what he knows is right. and He prays for God's strength and favor as he does it. You don't necessarily need a word or an answer in the precise way that you formed in your mind. You need zeal and energy to do the right thing. Consider Paul. He prays for his thorn to be removed. God says no. And he gives him something better. He gives him his grace to sustain him through the suffering. And then in another situation, he prays for his life and the life of all the people that are on the ship, and God grants it to him. So both can happen in your own life. And consider Jesus. Jesus prays. He says, this is when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he prays and he says, I thank you, Father, that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of those who are listening so that they may know that you sent me and you've given the Son of Man authority to give life to whomever he will. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. But then in the garden, he doesn't get the answer that he is wanting in his own self, but he ultimately gets what his higher desire is for God's will to be accomplished. And consider Elijah. This is the example that's actually held up for us in James, the letter of James, to pray like Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave their rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And James tells us, pray like Elijah, essentially. But here's what Elijah prays in, in the framework in Elijah's mind. God had promised to do just that. You read Deuteronomy carefully, he says, if you go after idols, I will shut the heavens so that there will be no rain. So Elijah is is intimately familiar with God's own promises for cursing and blessing, and he prays that God would honor his commitments in the case of Israel. God, you said if we went after idols that you would shut the heavens. Please shut the heavens. And God answers. So you and I, brothers and sisters, all of these examples are given to us as as pictures of how God works through prayer and how we're supposed to pray. It seems clear to me that clarity is usually given when we get an answer that's not what we want. That God seems to communicate more clearly when He has to sidestep and not give us the things that we're asking for. 
When the answer is different than what we want, we can trust His good designs. And when we're praying for things that are just basic to obedience, we can just get to work. We don't have to sit on our hands waiting for some voice from heaven or sense of super spirituality. We can just obey. Remember, you can ask wrongly. But I think the, what we should do when answers don't come is pray on the basis of God's promises for your good and His glory. And a caution even under that is that you can twist many passages of Scripture that aren't promises into promises. And then you're essentially putting words in God's mouth and asking Him to act on things that He never said as promises. So be intimately familiar with the things that are real promises in Scripture and pray according to those. Immerse yourself into those things. So, those are ways and reasons that we don't pray. Now let's ask the other question, the opposite question. Why should we pray? Number one, because we're commanded to do so. There is a command to do so. From verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It is a moral obligation, a moral ought for you to pray. And notice, I want you to notice with this parable or this set of parables that it's different than most parables. I actually don't know if there's another example of this happening where the evangelist, in this case Luke, tells us the interpretation of the parable beforehand. It's similar to the next one, but he doesn't tell him the interpretation of it, tell us the interpretation of it, just why he said it. I don't know if there's another, another parable that's like this. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And I think the, the reason why we're given that special interpretation there, some of the parables of Jesus are just given and like, there's almost no explanation. Or it's just go and do likewise. I think in this case, the reason why we have the interpretation firsthand is because we would be so prone to take this differently. We would find a way to weasel out of the moral obligation to pray. So Luke says, here's what he was meaning by this parable, that you ought always to pray and not lose heart. It is an obligation. There are many commands in the Bible for us to pray. Many of them are from Paul. But I'll give you one from the Old Testament. This is so interesting. You can just mark down this reference and go study it later, but I want to read it to you. It's Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. This is God speaking through the prophet to Israel. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. God is telling Israel this. By the way, I have set aside particular people and set them on the walls of Jerusalem to bother me and to make it so that I, if I needed rest, I couldn't get any rest. Put me continually in mem- remembrance. He is stirring up these people by His Spirit to pray this way and to not cease day or night so that God will answer 
Understand that this is how God works in His providential ordaining of the things that come to pass for the blessing of His people, the vindication of the righteous, and the recompense against the wicked. It will be the cogs that turn in God's own motivational matrix is or are the prayers of His people. And He ordains that they should do so. No, we... We're parents of small children, and I was driving a short drive, and I just thought, you know, I've probably heard, hey, daddy, 20 or 30 times, or like halfway in the drive. And Nova, our youngest, wakes up multiple times in the night, uh, essentially saying the same thing, hey, mommy, give me something. And God providentially ordains that there would be people from within his people doing the same thing, giving him no rest. Put me in remembrance always. We're commanded to do it. The second reason I think we should pray. I don't think I know. The the second reason I know that we should be a praying people is the glory of God. I think this is the point of the parable. If you follow the contours of the parable and you compare it to other Scripture, he, he holds up this example of the unjust judge as a foil or as an opposite of God. He's not saying that he is like the unjust judge. What I think is happening is is he's showing that as his people pray, he has entangled his reputation and his glory into their good. So his people are seen as those who cry out to him. This This is the rebuke or the taunt that people said to Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. He trusted in God. Let him delight in him, for he surely he delights in him. This, this is the what is at issue on judgment day. And this is why faith is what justifies, because you put your trust in God, in his Messiah, in the Lord Jesus. So God has entangled his reputation, his ability to be a deliverer in your case. And so he will deliver. And so when we pray, when we petition the Lord, we are, we are given a way to entangle His glory with our good. And look at the flavor of the statement when He comes to the interpretation. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? These are rhetorical questions. Of course He's going to give justice. Of course He's not going to delay long over them. He will give justice to them speedily. A similar passage in in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 11, He says this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? I think we really need to work to believe that at an emotional level. At an affectional level. That God is better than you as a parent. He's better than the best parent in this room. He knows how to give good gifts to those who ask Him. I think it also gives us confidence for the last day. And that's why 
it, it's spoken this way. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The, the, the essence of faith, at least in the context of this passage, is those who cry out to him. That's what faith does. Faith or trust in the Lord cries out to him for justice. And, and understanding and knowing that God operates this way, that, that he has staked his reputation on the good of his people, that gives us confidence for the last day that he, he will bring it all to the right. He will vindicate me. So we should want the glory of God. We should want the glory of God to be seen in His blessing and in His good and in, in His just treatment of His own people. We need to see it that way when we pray. The third reason we need to pray is because of today and forever. So we look at this, this phrase. He says, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry out for justice? You, you just look around and see what is happening in the world. You know that the just acts of God are, are what is needed in the world. We need God to show up and bring justice. The unjust judge in the story kind of stands as some way a paragon for the evil of this age. We need justice, and the world isn't giving it to us. The world is corrupt. It is against the people of God. The days are evil. Ephesians 5, verse 16, make the best use of the time for the days are evil. And understand, it's not just the problems going on today why we should pray. It is because of what's going to happen. The context of these two parables come on the heels of Jesus talking about the end of all things. Chapter 17, if you look at verses 20 through 21, he says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And then he goes to describe what the coming of the kingdom of God is going to be like. We should pray because of what is going to happen if we had a clear understanding of what these true eventual realities are with the coming of God's justice, we would pray much, much more. And I think that is why the next parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee is also part of it, because the tax collector understands the context of Judgment Day. It's not just all the tribulations that will come leading up to it, the, the tax collector sees past all of his circumstances and the situations that are maybe going on around, and he sees that one day he's going to have to stand before a holy God. And so he prays, he pleads with God for mercy. You and I had a real understanding and a deep sense of the truth of just the basic inevitabilities of the, grace, the great and awesome day of the Lord, you and I would pray so much more. We also need to pray because of the truth about us. In verses 6 through 8, in the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow, the people of God need justice, and we're unable to deliver it for ourselves. We can identify with the widow. 
The world system is corrupt and it's not doling out justice equally. When you look around and you consider the increase or the perceived increase of the turbulence and trouble in our time, has it led to an increase in the fervor and commitment to prayer in the church? Maybe privately, but as far as I have seen, churches that I'm aware of and all around, maybe, maybe you've seen something else, but what I've witnessed is rather an increase in fervor for political activism rather than an increase of fervor for prayer. It seems that it's waned. The posture of the elect in verses 6-8 through is that they cry out to the Lord for justice. He won't linger long over them. Those of you who may put too much trust or confidence in a form of Christian social activism or political reform, I fear you just don't know how bad it really is. And if you did, if you saw behind the veil you saw that it was none other than the enemy himself, we would pray. We would cry out for justice like they do. And he would not linger long. He would speedily give them justice. The foe we are up against can't be tamed. It must be thrown in the lake of fire. Verses 9-14 through show us, though, it's not just because of the turbulence of the world or the problems that we face and the lack of justice being able to be given to us. It's because of what we know about ourselves. The truth about us is that it is also much worse than you think. These verses, verses 9-14, through maybe you were a little surprised that I kept reading and read that parable, I do think they are connected. The intro to both of them is similar. Look at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with a contempt. So he's saying, pray always, don't lose heart, and here's a really bad way to pray and the right way to pray. And the examples of the Pharisee and tax collector are given as ways that we can approach God. So maybe the Pharisees heard him tell the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow and said, yeah, well, of course, we pray all the time. And then he rebukes them with the second parable. That's how I think they're connected. So it's essentially like this in verses 1 through 14. Pray! And when you pray, don't pray like the Pharisees, but rather pray like the tax collector. I think verses 9 through 14 show us many, many things. These are some of the most moving and theologically rich passages in all the New Testament. But they show us three things as it com- when it comes to prayer. One, we need to recognize and feel at a deep, deep level that we are unable to fix the problem. What is the tax collector's problem that he sees and is really aware of and emotionally senses? It's his guilt before a holy God. We had a deep sense that that is our problem. We're unable to fix this problem. Our hands are unclean. How can we cleanse ourselves? 
Number two, it shows that he has a sorrowful confession that God holds all the cards. He has no leg to stand on. Have mercy on... Won't even look up to heaven. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I haven't done what's right. I can't even do what's right to make you show favor to me. I need mercy. I need unmerited favor. I need your propitiation, God. I have no leg to stand on and it's all my fault. That's the posture we need when we pray. And if we had that posture, we would pray much, much more. And number three, I think it shows, obviously, that the Lord is our only hope. If We had a deep, deep sense, like the tax collector did, that God's mercy and God Himself, the one we have offended, is our only hope in view of our own sin, in view of our guilt, in view of everything that we've ruined. Then we would pray so much more. I think our attitude is commonly this. God can be seen as one who will bless or finish or or make better our efforts. So so we do all the stuff, we do activity, or we we work really hard, we do we do uh, labor and we 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 do the right thing and then we pray and then and then that's like God making it just a little bit better better or bringing it up to to par or something like that. But that's not the way We need to pray. The Lord does not build a house. Those who labor, labor in vain. If He's not involved in the foundation in everything we do, it's all for naught. Even if it works out. Do you understand that? One of the signs of God's judgment is for Him to give success to people who won't pray. And who don't pray in the right way. Think, think of that example in James chapter 4, verses 1-4. through four. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. What would it mean from God's posture for Him to give something to someone who's asking wrongly? Judgment. We should be fearful of success if we are not a fervently praying people. The last reason that we should pray is because of the Gospel. Understand that everything in your life as a believer, if if there's something wrong in your life, if there's something that you're not understanding, some, some error, some problem, it's rooted in some way in a misunderstanding of the Gospel. Everything depends on a right understanding of the Gospel. That's why the New Testament is written the way it is. I've been dancing around this for this whole message because I wanted to save it for last, but the parable of the unjust judge and the widow and the Pharisee and the tax collector point us back to the Gospel and what God has done. Do you understand that what God has done in Christ has made you His child and qualified you and given you access to ask Him anything. You see, what happens with the cross, Jesus dying in our place for our sins, and our trusting in Christ, 
uniting us to Him gives you the same status as the firstborn in the eyes of God. You are adopted into God's family. Your sins having been forgiven through His death on the cross, the only thing that could remove that is His death, and He's provided that for you. And if you have trusted in Him for forgiveness of sins, you are not just forgiven and pardoned and just waiting to enter some uh, better situation at the end of your life. You've been given sonship. You have been invited to ask God for things. And in fact, in many key places, in Romans 8 being one of them, where, where the blessings of salvation are being discussed and the amazing things that God does, one of the things that He says immediately, right in connection with that, so we cry, Abba, Father. We, one, one of the things that makes salvation in Christ so unique and different and unexpected is that you are now given the place and right to ask. So what a what a cosmic waste it would be for you to be given sonship through the adoption that is yours in Jesus Christ and to not pray. Understand how much effort and pain and suffering He went through to put you in that position so that you can, so that you would be one of the ones who would bother Him and essentially say, hey daddy, all the time. And make things his problem. Invite him into the conversation about it because he wants to. He has decreed, he has decided in his sovereignty to give you that position. Virgin, speaking about revival and about prayer, he says it this way Brothers and sisters, we believe in God. Do we not? And if we do, we believe that whatever estate a church is in, God can bring it out of it. Do not run away from it and say God can never bless it. He can bless it. Pray it up into a blessing. And make this the essence of your prayer. Lord, Thou canst revive us. We believe it and look for us. For it. Let us make a solemn league and covenant together, and let us in union and concert of prayer wait upon the Lord and hear what He shall speak. For He will yet speak peace unto His people if we do not but know how to ask for it. I leave you with this. This is Spurgeon. This sweet prayer to be prayed night and day. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Brothers and sisters, He has told us that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. May we be found to be those who have faith at His coming. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for wrong Wrong thoughts of you, small thoughts of you, stingy ideas of you. Help us understand how committed you are to your own glory. Everything you've gone through and everything that you have paid in order to make it possible for us to pray and to approach you with boldness and confidence for the last day. May we be found faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.